Okay, welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm joined today by my guest, Nick Deolius, uh, CEO of CNX. Uh, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you? Just fantastic. Um, super excited to be chatting with you today. I think we've got a lot to chat about. Um, very exciting time to be chatting with someone like you, uh, head of CNX, and, and particularly with the state of the world in the natural gas industry. Um, I can't wait to can't wait to dive in. But before we get to kind of CNX and talking about the energy industry more broadly, I want to focus on you. Um, and I'd like to start every episode by talk chat about our guests and talk about their backgrounds. So if you don't mind, Nick, why don't you just kind of give a brief introduction to your current role, and then let's dive in and talk about kind of where you started and how you got there. Sure, I've been at CNX Resources or, or prior versions of the company. Uh, for 32 years now. I've never worked anywhere else professionally, so basically my entire adult life. It's a rare I, story. Yes, I've, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of types of different things and in jobs within those those 32-odd years. Um, but you know, looking at it cumulatively sort of reflects a lot of the strengths and attributes of not just the company, but the industry we're in, natural gas uh, development and, and procurement, as well as uh, Western Pennsylvania, Appalachia in general. And I'm a native of the Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area. I've lived, interestingly, within maybe a four, five-mile radius my entire life, again, by choice. Uh, so, you know, regionally, industry-wise, and with respect to CNX, uh, I've been around for, for a while now. That's that's fantastic. Um, rare, rare story uh, for folks to stick with the company their entire career. Um, Where did you go to school? If you, I assume you have school nearby then. Yeah, I um, basically uh, grew up in the city itself, attended a uh, grade school and elementary school, but then moved to sort of the suburbs just outside of the, the city limits where I attended a, a local high school, Chartres Valley, just down the road from where I'm sitting now. And then, uh, you know, went off as the first sort of person in my family to attend college, went off to Penn State, studied engineering, came out with a, a chemical engineering degree, had no idea what a chemical engineer did. And uh, sort of before or after you uh, finished school, <laughs> before, uh, during, and until right until I, I finished uh, the program, it, it took some some real world experience to to figure that out, um, which is typically the way it works. I think that's nothing special uh, in that regard. Nothing like real world experience to to sort of show you what careers are like and the opportunities and challenges that go with them. And then uh, through the course of my career while working. At the company early on, I had the opportunity to, to go to night graduate school, and I got an MBA and a, uh, a law degree from Duquesne separately. So I was able to, to do that through the years as well. Awesome. Well, give us some color on the history of CNX then. And I mean, if you've been there for over 30 years, I'm sure you've seen it morphed uh, several times. And I, I don't think it was called CNX the entire time, right? Can you, can you kind of just kind of walk us through uh, the history during your tenure? Sure. It's a very interesting one, to say the least. The the company and its prior sort of generations of this story stretches now almost 160 years. It's 158 years old. And when the company was first incorporated, uh, the president in the White House was Abraham Lincoln. Just puts that in, in perspective of how long uh, this, this entity has been around. And originally, back in the day, it was very much exclusively a coal mining enterprise. So the name was Consolidation Coal Company, emphasis on consolidation, where it was aggregating gigantic Appalachian footprints of coal rights and mining coal, and basically pioneered a lot of technologies uh, decades ago. Longwall mining is probably the most 
um, famous sort of effort that it helped pioneer across the industry, which is the, the most efficient form and the norm today uh, globally. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, sort of right around the time I started, which was in 1990, uh, somebody within the company, one of the things we got very proficient at uh, was being able to liberate methane from the coal seam and gassy coal seams before mining occurred because methane was the enemy of the coal miner. So the company pioneered, became very adept at developing technologies to liberate the methane from the coal seams via fracturing uh, the coal seams and then drilling the head of the mine plan uh, to improve the efficiencies of the mining. And someone had the very astute idea and smart idea to say, instead of venting this, why don't we instead collect it? And then instead of one saleable product of coal, we also would have two, coal and, of course, natural gas via coal bed methane. And that really was the genesis of how we got into the ENP business. We, we evolved into that through disruptive and innovative technology. And before you knew it, uh, the natural gas segment via coal bed methane was a big part of the, the going concern. We wanted to put that out there on a standalone basis around 2005. Here comes the shale revolution with the Marcellus and Utica in Appalachia in, in particular. We're part of the forefront of that as well. And before you knew it, through a lot of thinking, evolution, refinement of technology, and some strategy and, and good timing, uh, we basically evolved the company from what was once an essential and, and pure play coal company to one that is now uh, natural gas and, and natural gas midstream. So it's been a, an interesting journey. And in a really short period of time, over those 160 years or so, if you look at it, it's really something that's evolved over the past 30. Yeah, I love that. I love when companies can identify a different profit center, right? a different value stream from their asset, and then really be able to exploit it. So smart on you guys to, to chase that. Um, I think it's also fascinating the the removing methane from coal bed from coal beds um, wasn't obvious, right? I mean, I, it took some time for guys to realize what was actually happening right? with water being absorbed in in the formation and the gas. Because I mean, right with coal bed methane reservoirs, initially you just produced much water. Yeah, depending right on the coal seam, how much uh, gas content you've got, water content, et cetera, a whole bunch of different yeah. physical characteristics. But, but the CBM arena and what happened with the Marcellus, Utica, Shale Horizons all across the United States globally, what's really interesting, what they all share in common is that that technology and pursuing that opportunity, right, that disruptive technology, innovation, ingenuity that you see, uh, basically driven by this domestic energy industry and, and by the free market and private enterprise. So many people say, well, this was done um, without the support of something like government or government regulation. But the truth of the matter is probably the more accurate statement is this was done in spite of, in some instances, what government policy was aiming at. It just shows you the power of the United States when it comes not just to domestic energy, but sort of the identification, the development, and then the demonstration of technologies to the point where literally they're disrupting things on a global scale because energy, of course, affects everything that we do. Yeah. With with one caveat, I guess, that you guys are in on the right side of the border, meaning in Pennsylvania and uh, not New York. My uh, my dad put together a big land deal in New York right about probably when you guys were even kicked off and uh, $0 came out of that. <laughs> So, yeah, well, that's that shows you really that's the, the antithesis, right? of policy. You know, policy yeah. matters. And what's really uh, sad when you look at that situation, whether it's New York, New England, uh, you can see some parallels as well in California. You know, those policies continued. It wasn't just something like a fracking ban in New York. It was basically the prohibition of building pipeline infrastructure, 
to take the molecules from the Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, prohibition of natural gas fire generation, right? New housing developments or businesses having access to it. And what happens is you basically go from a situation where you should have just profound energy security to profound energy insecurity. And if energy politics and energy policy is geopolitics and geopolitics, then you can see where you start to have some of the situations that we've seen recently in Texas, in California, in Europe with what's going on with Ukraine. And I think we'll continue, unfortunately, on a bigger scale until you know we get some of these policy issues righted in terms of the science and the logic. Absolutely. I want to dive into that a little bit more and kind of what your uh, ideas are and perhaps approach might be best for our listeners in the audience to, to chase. But before we do, I want to focus a little bit more on CNX. Um, what, so you guys operate in Pennsylvania. Um, give us a little bit more color on kind of the current size and scale of the organization. I mean, when I looked at your guys' public material, uh, your reserves are very impressive. Your production now, I mean, you, you guys are a big shop in Pennsylvania. Yeah, we've um, we've I think built a a very impressive sort of uh, of a model and approach. We reference it as our sustainable business model, but it goes back to those types of questions that you're asking. Our footprint is exclusively Appalachia. So when I when I say Appalachia, I'm really speaking of the northern Appalachian region. So from Western Virginia uh, to West Virginia, Eastern Ohio, and Western Pennsylvania. That's basically our breadbasket historically and, and currently. Um, a lot of the focus and attention, of course, is on the Marcellus and Utica shales. We still have a coal bed methane uh, business that, uh, that we're quite excited about. And we also are the only Appalachian player that integrates the upstream drilling and completions activities with the midstream processing, gathering, pipeline, compression side of the equation. So we're an integrated asset base uh, with a pretty tight geographic footprint, and those things together sort of enables us to have the position of the low-cost producer when it comes to all-in uh, cash costs in basin, when it comes to capital efficiencies, uh, that type of thing in basin. And because we're the low-cost producer, um, then we're in a position to be able to programmatically hedge our future production volumes. So we don't take so much of a stance on gas price, whether we're bullish or bearish, and try to speculate whether we're open or whether we're more heavily hedged. We say because we're the low-cost producer, because we're ready to return focused on our, our capital deployment, uh, we've got the ability to lock in very attractive returns and cash margins basically under any effective forward strip. Let's programmatically ladder that in as time unfolds on a consistent, methodical basis, take that risk off the table, have more certainty um, with those returns and the per share value uh, that we see for, for our ownership because we're, of course, a public company uh, with the duty, the fiduciary sure. duty, in the end to deliver a, uh, a return that's that's got uh, somebody to get excited about with respect to capital markets. Absolutely. Um, that's pretty rare for uh, EMPs now to also integrate the midstream piece. But, I mean, you guys have, what, over 4,000 wells and uh, a rather large footprint. But So I think having that kind of scale probably helps uh, to have your own gathering infrastructure. Am I wrong? Yeah. Or is that a big strategic no, choice? For... You are right. Um, and it really goes back to you know, some of the aspects that are unique to Appalachia. But also, you know, what's happening with respect to technology coupled with uh, with resource? And what I mean by that is when you start looking at what we're doing over that tighter footprint, uh, we don't have multi-basins, you're looking at a couple of things. You're looking at stack pays, where we're looking at developing the Marcellus and the Utica below it concurrently. On um, some instances, of course, we have the coal bed methane far above it, right, closer to the surface uh, with respect to, to what's going on there. And then if you have the pipeline infrastructure and the processing infrastructure, oftentimes same surface 
vertical footprint, right, that you're looking um, to, to develop, much more efficient, much more elegant sort of development chain for energy, for domestic energy production versus doing all of those separately. A Utica developer and producer, a Marcellus producer, a midstream producer, et cetera. Um, you couple with that things like water infrastructure. I know you've done a lot of, of work assessing water infrastructure and, and where water might be heading. That, as you know, is a crucial piece of something like domestic natural gas uh, development, uh, without a doubt, including in Appalachia. Well, we've also basically replicated that footprint. So in many instances, over the same acre, right, you've got everything from water infrastructure and transportation infrastructure for it, natural gas, um, transportation and processing infrastructure, the actual wellheads uh, with respect to both Utica and Marcellus, and in some instances, coal bed methane. It's a very efficient, um, very low CO2 intensity because it's a very high energy density endeavor. So when you start looking at things like CO2 intensity and how people want to focus on ESG, but they struggle with ways to quantify that, right, under a, a science-based, uh, rational-based approach other than just sort of arbitrary ideology or, or politics, something like energy density and the CO2 footprint that goes with it, coupled on top of being very close to some major demand centers for energy in the world, right, based on where Appalachia sits, uh, this is about as good as it gets, not just within yeah. the United States, but but all across uh, all across the globe. That's great. So you, you talked about CNX being a sustainable business. Um, when I was in school, they had, our class I took was sustainable energy, and the definition of sustainable energy was uh, seven generations at least. That, you know, any resource could last that long. Uh, I don't know that you guys have that many reserves, um, but talk to me a little bit about kind of you guys' forward-looking uh, uh, views. Next one, five, 20 years, I mean, do you see just kind of continuing natural gas production and what's your guys' runway and long-term view? Yeah, pretty interesting uh, future. You're right. You know, the, the uh, issue and definition of sustainability sometimes def yeah. defies like a – People have different definition. definitions, right? <laughs> yeah, I read that UN definition, which is the most popular version of defining sustainable and sustainability, and it sounds great. And then you look at it and you say there's really – you could interpret this a million different ways depending on what how you wanted to, to sort of skew it. Um, but when I think of it, and I think of it in the context of something like uh, an industry or a business endeavor, um, I look at a couple of things. One, you need to have, you know, some form of a of a resilient competitive advantage, something that won't that currently exists and that won't go away or can't be replicated easily. So this low cost position, largely driven by that, that Appalachian footprint with the integrated asset base, um, that is something from our perspective that is non replicable or to replicate it would you know, take a tremendous long period of time and, and literally yeah. billions of dollars of, of investment. Um, and then, you know, really it's about if you're the low-cost producer and you programmatically hedge, being a great capital allocator. When you're generating free cash flow under all different portions of that business cycle, from low gas price environments to, to better gas price environments, um, A, are you generating free cash flow? And then B, what are you doing with it? What philosophies are you going to employ to allocate that free cash flow. And that will usually, right, smoke out the truly sustainable versus the sustainable and sort of just, just talk or theoretical mode. Because the types of things that we're looking to do with that free cash flow, it's very sequential and logical on how we approach things. And the first thing we do, of course, is we invest in the types of assets and infrastructure that allows us to continually produce that free cash flow in a safe and environmentally compliant manner. And again, we're fortunate because of those inherent advantages I spoke about, where we typically only need anywhere from, from 20 to 
to 30 tideline wells a year to just maintain our, our production profile. So it doesn't take a tremendous amount of capital or drilling or completions activity to keep doing what we're doing for years on end. So that extends your, your inventory life if you're just thinking of things from a free cash flow generation perspective uh, and or, right, it, it basically makes it much more profitable of, of an effort. The next thing that we'll do as we turn to, right, what everybody says is their most valuable asset, which is their employee base, the team that you work with, and we want to set up incentives and compensation practices where as we execute, as we deliver, right, on metrics that matter, like free cash flow per share, then, and, and share price appreciation, then the employees are rewarded uh, accordingly. And our intention is that we basically pay well above market compensation levels because we would be performing and delivering to our owners above the normal with respect to, to the metrics that matter. So if you look at our all-in average median compensation per employees, this is adding up you know, all the forms of compensation from incentive comp to, to base salary, uh, 401k, that type of thing. I think the, uh, the most recent data I saw, we're approaching $180,000 per employee excluding CEO. And that's a really good thing to see because that creates long-termism with the employees, retention, right? You get employees that stick around for 30 plus years because they want to, um, sort of volunteers, not hostages, uh, so to speak. Uh, those are all good things. Um, we invest in the community. So we set up the CNX Foundation. And when we invest in the community, we take a different approach to this. Uh, what we don't do is we don't pick sort of the big nameplate efforts or organizations that are already well-funded and out there. And you, know, you won't see us presenting a gigantic check with a picture or photo up. We want to get our hands dirty um, with the truly challenging issues in Appalachia, urban and rural. And we want to get after those challenges and we want to partner with entities in those spaces that nobody gives enough attention to, whether it's resources in terms of dollars or time and assistance in terms of effort, which means, right, our foundation and our regional community effort, it is in many ways set up to fail. Like we should be failing. If we're succeeding successfully on every effort, it means we're really not following what I just described. So we accept going in. We're going to not have 100% success rate or hit rate, and that's okay. That's why these problems persist. But that's been um, very uh, rewarding and a great rate of return investment. We don't give. We don't donate. We invest in these partners, and it's, it's been an awesome piece of the, the business uh, to be part of. And then when that's all said and done, so we invested in the asset base to keep things going efficiently, improve the efficiencies. We basically compensate our employees on pay for performance, giving back to the regional communities, now it's time to basically return capital either to the balance sheet. So every quarter we want to pay down a certain magnitude of debt. We think that's just a good practice to increase your strength and, and your flexibility and optionality. And then we want to return capital to shareholders. And right now the form of that return to shareholders that we've been under for the last two years has been share count reduction, share buybacks, because we think our shares are significantly undervalued and there's nothing uh, better when you got a situation like that to take advantage of it instead of complaining about it by acquiring yourself. So that's the model. It's a repeat, recycle, repeat, recycle um, over and over again. We think it's a formula for success. We've now posted eight consecutive quarters of, of true positive free cash flow, and that's expected to grow at a, a pretty uh, significant rate here on a per share basis uh, into 2022, 23, and beyond. And we think that uh, that's an exciting model that uh, that is definitely going to provide a good return opportunity for, for owners. While all that's going on, the only other thing I'll add, on top of all that, right, going back to our history of innovation, we are developing and deploying some exciting new technologies uh, in the new technology arena 
that will either you know fundamentally uh, re change, reshape, um, innovate the way you go about natural gas extraction in Appalachia and beyond, make it more efficient, less carbon carbon intensive, lower cost, or in some instances create some new markets of demand for our natural gas products in things like the transportation fields, whether it's ground transportation or, or aviation. That's uh, phenomenal. So, so much to touch on. I, I can tell you've given that speech once or twice before, but uh, it's, it's all phenomenal talking points. <laughs> I am very impressed with the investment in the community level and then also in your uh, employee staff. And then, of course, I'm sure investors are always happy to hear that you guys are focused on returning cash to them through dividends and payouts, right, and always having that in mind. Um, it's okay. I'd like to zoom in a little bit on the um, investment in the asset base and also kind of some of those technologies. Um, so, uh, you know, drilling 20 to 30 more natural gas wells per year, awesome base level act of activity to, to do to maintain your guys' cash flow basis. Um, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned it seems like a lot of information on your guys' website about uh, how you might be limiting emissions and then kind of also your water business. Can we chat a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, when you think of emissions, and particularly methane emissions um, and, and anything that sort of emanates from that, one way to look at that, of course, and this goes back to sort of the coal bed methane discussion earlier, is that that's lost yield, right? That is a, a, a loss of efficiency, a loss of yield. Yeah, especially for a nat natural gas company, right? Exactly. <laughs> you guys are emitting any methane, then you're yeah. losing your number we, one product, right? We yeah. don't like that. We don't want that. And, you know, anything yeah. that we can do, um, to basically invest or change processes, management of change, so to speak, to minimize or eliminate or eradicate those emissions, uh, that is absolutely a no-brainer, a good business move, right? It improves your yield. And that is something that we had been on the march on for, for years now, um, just from a yield perspective. Now, when you come into the arena of regulation and how regulations increasingly are looking towards things like that and looking to sort of increase the level of performance when it comes to that across the industry – that's just more reason, right, to pursue that aggressively. And a lot of those new technologies uh, that I talked about were through that continual improvement approach and continuous improvement uh, methodology where you're constantly looking to refine, to evolve, to tinker. And sometimes it's maybe a bold step that results in a step change in improvement when it comes to emissions and emission reduction. But oftentimes it's a series of dozens and dozens of smaller incremental steps that cumulatively Right, have a an outsized impact, and we've seen both with within the company, and we've seen it with respect to the midstream operations as well as with respect to what we're doing upstream. Um, and I think again, a lot of those technologies that we've sort of developed and now are demonstrating uh, will have a, a very sort of attractive opportunity set uh, beyond our company when we start looking at developing those and providing those to to wider participants in either the domestic energy industry or in the global energy industry. Can you potentially speak to any or give an example of one or two? I would think, you know, generally speaking, some of these really all, if, if you look at the three or four different things we're working on, they all have that common set of characteristics, which is they are things that will um, reduce risk profile. And in some instances, that means you know, simplifying what's going on on pad or simplifying a process uh, that you would want to perform on a midstream segment. So reducing sort of the, the risk map of what you're doing, reducing the cost. Okay, sometimes that goes concurrent with how you're reducing the risk. Sometimes there's additional cost savings on top of that. And then reducing the CO2 equivalent emissions. Because of whatever process, whatever technology that you're replacing, it had some inherent emission 
associated with it. So this could be anything from what's going on to drilling completion side of the formula to what's occurring with flowback to what's occurring with respect to pigging operations on our midstream um, say assets in, in, inside of the, uh, the domestic energy chain. But they all share um, those common characteristics. On the technologies that could be applied um, to basically get into new demand areas and demand centers for natural gas, like ground transportation and aviation, now, those speak more toward being able to efficiently and elegantly change the state of the methane molecule. So what I mean by that is, you know, of course, Utica Marcellus produces gaseous form of methane, and if you can find a way to efficiently convert that into compressed natural gas or into liquefied natural gas on pad, then suddenly compressed natural gas right, can do those very same uh, sort of attributes that I just talked about with the, the upstream technologies of lower cost, um, lower CO2 equivalent emissions when it starts to displace something like gasoline or diesel with ground transportation. LNG can do the same type of things with respect to aviation. And when you start looking at the costs of these alternatives on a dollar per million BTU basis, instead of dollars per MCF and dollars per gallon, if you want to put them on an apples-to-apples basis, the cost of jet fuel or diesel or gasoline is anywhere from you know three to four to five times what the cost of natural gas is. So if you can convert that natural gas into CNG, LNG without, you know, undergoing billions of gigantic plant-type investments, uh, suddenly, and you can do that and sculpt that sort of well-by-well well or pad-by-pad, then all of a sudden now you've got really a compelling cost as well as ESG case to make to start um, displacing diesel, gasoline, and in some instances things like jet aviation fuel. Fascinating. Yeah, I know we're doing that actively with on our – frack locations at least, replacing diesel with natural gas or LNG, um, which produces emissions. And then I know and people have been doing that on drilling rigs for a long time also. Yeah, understand all of those points. And very, very forward-thinking and innovative, right? How else can you sell your product and who else can be demanding? Because even at $9 and MVTU gas, energy equivalent, that's like 50 bucks plus barrel per oil, um, barrel oil, right? And oil's at 120 now, so there's still tremendous arbitrage there that even if it takes more energy to liquefy it or get it into a different saleable state, there's still arbitrage to be realized. Well, you know, there's there's a cost arbitrage that you bring up. Uh, there is a CO2 equivalent emission arbitrage uh, benefit you, that we talked about. There is a massive supply chain arbitrage because, again, looking at supply chains and the length of those and the complexity of those, it's not coming from somewhere like the Permian, right? Then in some instances, you got very long supply chains that really start in very questionable cloudy areas when it comes to ESG and human rights and everything like that, geopolitics, uh, rearing its head again. And, and then you've also got, right, just the overall opportunity that it will accrue when it comes to GDP, job growth, balance of trade, you know, national debt, all those things, the middle, the revival of the middle class, right, for underserved urban and rural communities, whether it's in Appalachia or beyond. You start to get into some of these, what the, the environmental movement originally sort of coined as externalities, right? The positive yeah. externalities that you see with this type of an approach makes all the sense in the world when you look at things from just the, the common sense approach all the way down to the numbers, economics numbers from a, from a scientific basis as well. Yeah, I think that's a great way to phrase it. And I don't think I've heard that phrased, uh, heard, heard the 
conversation characterized that way before. Meaning, yeah, the environmental movement talks about the tragedy of commons and the negative externalities associated with climate change and CO2 emissions, but then never gives any credit to the positive externalities or co- direct consequences of energy production predominantly from fossil fuels. And they're, they're huge. I mean, if you do a balance of any of them, which people are doing with their dollars every single day, the, the decision is very obvious on uh, which one's better. Um, and if you get your cake and eat it too, because if, if CO2 atmospheric concentrations are of utmost concern to you, well, when you look at the uh, amount of, of oil, especially from the longer procured supply chains uh, internationally, and as well as all the other types of products, whether it's coal on the power grid and, and whatnot, um, there is a tremendous amount of CO2 equivalent reduction opportunity by simply allowing natural gas to take its natural spot, you know, that the free market, that innovation, that the data would dictate it would have, um, along with all the ancillary benefits that come with it, because all this would be domestic and all the investment uh, that accrues with it. You know, the flip side of this is that if you look at something, you see this oftentimes in the context of the hydrogen economy, you know, people clamoring for uh, the development of the hydrogen economy, and particularly green hydrogen, but in the meantime, or in the shorter term, blue hydrogen. Um, our view is natural gas jumpstarts our times of when we start to see the hydrogen economy, at least in a critical mass you know, level of activity in this nation, via natural gas. Natural gas has to be the fuel, that the feedstock that basically makes that happen in any sort of appreciable time period that doesn't get measured in decades, right? And if you look at, again, the CO2 equivalent um, benefits to it, it's substantial. You know, the other side of this is I think this industry has done a great job, the domestic energy industry, of starting to show our math, right, show our homework, our work in the homework yeah. on what our CO2 um, impacts are, whether it's scopes one through two or scopes one through three. What I still don't see is basically the transparent comparative analysis that we can perform for some of these alternatives that are touted basically as zero CO2, zero carbon sources of, of energy. I think uh, when you start to look at the true supply chain and the life cycle development aspects of those uh, sort of pieces of the energy portfolio, not only are there reliability concerns and not only are there cost concerns, right, but much of that is offshored, and I think it has tremendous CO2 footprints that we're just starting to begin as a society to get our hands around with respect to maybe we need to do that math and show that work so that we yeah. can compare right on an apples-to-apples basis, you know, what those externalities manifest when it comes to CO2 footprint in the end. Well, I, I love this conversation, and I'm so happy that I've, I've got you for this. Um, so the natural gas industry frequently touts uh, the advantage of, you know, let's move away from coal and we can lower emissions directly by just being able to burn natural gas. But many utilities and countries around the world have the stated goal of by 2030 to 2050 being X percent net zero or as close to emission-free as possible, which ultimately uh, nat- just burning natural gas for electricity or any other fuel doesn't get you there. And I think what you're referencing or my take on your comments where the wind and solar industry doesn't look at their true cost of carbon and externalities and the cost of the unreliability associated with those resources. Um, So I'll I'll put you a little bit on the spot, but ask, um, Trent, what's the next step after natural gas? Or how do we move to a true net zero from natural gas, um, assuming that society could? And I'll give you really two options, which is either direct air capture or nuclear power. Yeah, so um, or you can say neither. <laughs> well, so let, let's talk nuclear. Nuclear has some inherent advantages, of course, uh, when it comes in specifically the CO2 arena. 
Um, and again, being an engineer and looking at things objectively, right? Uh, do I think nuclear by and large is safe? Yes. But do I also think that it's the type of risk where even though it's a small chance of incident, when the incident does occur or if it were to occur, it has an outsized impact, right, or a consequence. We've seen that now three times over, um, and it has a massive uh, impact. So that, to me, has always been you know, the issue with nuclear. And many of those incidents, by the way, were not what you typically think of that you see in movies or dramas with respect to those types of, of events or accidents. They've basically been under sort of maintenance or testing uh, when those things have occurred. Or in the case of Fukushima, right, it was basically the backup uh, diesel generators that weren't able to, to function because they were underwater. They're sort of simple things, but they can lead to outsized impacts. Um, and, you know, plus on top of that, I don't know if we're anywhere close to, you know, getting the uh, the government or and or public approval uh, globally to build those at, at the scale that would be required. Um, when it comes to uh, the carbon equation, right, in the end, we've got some sort of physics realities because physics and math are undefeated. They are still undefeated um, this far into uh, humankind history into 2022. And what they tell us are a couple things. Like we do know um, that to scale wind and solar, no matter what your thoughts or views are of them, to scale them anything close to what these different government commitments, policies, um, you know, geopolitical, uh, supranational right type agreements like Paris, what they envision would require will require a massive, massive ramp up surface mining, processing, manufacturing in far away areas from where the energy demands are, at least currently, right, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, China, et cetera. And those activities will have massive carbon footprints tied to them. We know that. Um, we, we also know that the amount of the materials, it could be rare earth, it can be graphite, it can be cobalt, copper, it doesn't matter. The, the scale up that you will need, whether it's for EVs, turbines, panels, all the above, unprecedented in terms of the growth rate. And you're starting to see just a blip of that with what's going on with supply chains and inflation today. So the, the com that, that term increasingly competitively cost competitive with, you know, traditional, that's, you know, looking through a whole bunch of costs and sort of netting out subsidy, which again, over the long term is not going to be sustainable from a fiscal uh, perspective as well as from a physical perspective. So we know these things, which tells you in the end, Natural gas is sort of the fallback baseload de facto energy source. And it can be such in a way where you're doing a couple of things. One, it's reliable and affordable, and it's domestic. So that means when it comes to things like grid resiliency, right, because it could be baseload, it could be peaking. It could be U.S. grid, could be California grid, could be Europe grid, could be a developing nation's grid. It will be a secure grid with natural gas as a key component of it than without it. We know that natural gas can displace more CO2-intensive forms of energy, like, like we just talked about that in the case of transportation. There's also some manufacturing parallels with respect to that as well. And we also know that natural gas, or at least access to power electricity from natural gas, that's the quickest path to get two-plus billion people on planet Earth that do not have access to reliable, affordable electricity, to get them access sooner rather than later. And if you do that, their life expectancies go up, okay, their infant mortality rates decline, and their quality of life vastly improves. So, you know, morally, I think our view needs to be one of let's move towards things that just not that subsidize, that mandate. Nobody's 
proponents of of any of that when it comes to natural gas, simply allowing the natural gas innovators and doers in industry to do what it's capable of doing. It's ridiculous that we cannot build a pipe from Pennsylvania to Boston, Citygate, to provide Bostonians reliable, affordable access to energy that is onshored. And instead, you've got Boston that at times is getting its energy from thousands of miles away and from very cloudy supply chains with pretty egregious carbon footprints. Just doesn't make sense. But again, sense is defined as math and physics versus ideology or sort of a belief system. That's why you see this dichotomy. Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, also bizarre that New York shut down Indian Point nuclear power plant when it was the most carbon-free mission source that they had on the grounds yep. of the environment. And California is doing a similar thing with its, yeah. you know, considering, right. right, Diablo and... Yeah, all uh, all very peculiar. Um, do you think there's opportunity in the direct air capture for CO2? And I think from a technology perspective, um, there's high potential. It really is a question of what would the cost be to do that at scale? Sure. And um, you know, how does that cost, again, looking at things rationally, how does that cost and the mitigation of CO2 that comes with it atmospherically, how does that compare to the cost of the incrementally higher CO2 emissions that you would see atmospherically? And you know, if you run, if you have 10 um, PhDs run 10 models on comparing those two, I'm sure you'd get 11 different answers, right? But uh, that to me is how I would um, I would look at that. It's not so much a technology challenge as it would be you know, what's the inherent cost tied to it, and because that's a fundamental energy is a fundamental sort of you know foundation feedstock of everything else economically that occurs downstream of it. Is it something that can be shouldered or not? Yeah, good point. To to the your point on the nuclear piece or having outsized risk for um, that perhaps could be difficult to quantify. I push back on that, actually, meaning like, you know, there's really only three accidents that we can that everyone is aware of or that is at the front of everyone's mind, even though there's been more. And very, very, very few people have been hurt, or at least when every time that I dig into it um, and try and figure out the actual numbers of perhaps an increased cancer risk or number of people that were actually hurt in each incident, like, you know, the Fukushima incident, nobody was harmed or killed from radiation during the incident, you know, so which. That's that's uh, perhaps a different viewpoint that not a lot of people think about or have perhaps done a bunch of homework on. Um, versus, I know in the oil and gas industry we have accidents all the time, and it's almost the more the, because they're more prevalent, nobody notices them. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think you know from a, a nuclear perspective, it, it comes more into um, nuclear at scale, like a, a single plant versus you know, nuclear that's more modulized, more right. um, dispersed. Uh, I think nuclear plants in certain applications, locations, make a tremendous amount of sense, which if you look at the United States, that's sort of the way that we went about capitalizing that piece of the grid. So I'm not saying that nuclear should not be a key part of of an electricity grid in a developed nation. I I think it should. Um, But, you know, the thought that we would um, create smaller um, you know, almost modular plants of, of that and then start to put them across different um, locations that, that would be very different than what traditionally we think of. That's where it gets, um, that's where it gets interesting. If you've got a recall on one of those, it's a little bit different than having a recall on a Tesla, right? So, um, but again, if I'm designing a grid for a nation 
or I'm looking, I'm a utility and I have got a business model where I'm a provider of last resort and I've got a big service area with millions of customers and ratepayers, nuclear would, I would want that to absolutely be a piece of the electricity grid. Yeah. Well, let's dive in a little bit on, um, you, you alluded to it briefly, but I think this idea is fascinating and I'm curious about, um, what your guys' approach is to um, attempting to influence the politics around pipelines. And right? I mean, you guys have a product that you uh, sell, and it's easiest and best to transport, uh, most efficient to transport through pipe. Um, and getting, just like you said, pipelines built, um, particularly on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Um, right, Boston isn't that far from Pittsburgh uh, or from your guys' assets. It would make a ton of sense just to build pipe there, along with building more LNG export terminals along the East Coast. Um, why isn't that happening, and how do we change it? Well, it's not happening because, again, it doesn't fit the desired ideology of those that set policy or, or those that are in a position to influence policy. And you know, the consequences are severe. We're starting to see more right. and more of those. We saw Super that expensive in- energy prices in New England and not being able to export your guys' product cheaply to help people abroad, right? And not only that, it erodes the the economic viability of whatever that region is. So, so California, with Pacific Gas and Electric being sort of the, the example of what can happen over time cumulatively, um, that disrupts the entire Californian economy or wherever that, that rate base is. Texas, same, same situation. Boston, right, that at some point will impact economic GDP. Um, Europe is learning that as we speak with respect to how you say, all right, from an ideological perspective, we'll shutter our domestic sources of, say, natural gas, and we will become, uh, we'll make an official sort of uh, optical drive towards things like wind and solar, but inevitably, when they can't fill those voids, especially in the time frame that we're talking about, the shorter time frame, then in the end, you know, we have to build one or two major natural gas lines from a place called Russia, and we're going to be entirely relying upon them. That should not have been a surprise that it played out that way, um, but that is the, the intended consequence. <laughs> but it was. It caught everyone off guard, right? It's like, well, right. And, was, and, and by uh, the way, everyone was ignorant. Yeah. It, it gets worse because when you do those things, there basically become three benefactors to that globally, right? You have someone like Russia that will benefit from two on two fronts, from oil and natural gas production, so higher prices for them and more dependent customers, which creates geopolitical leverage if you happen to be a strong man running Russia. And you also benefit when it comes to rare earths and all these other materials and metals that need to be mined for more wind and solar, right? And you also have to likely process those. Same with China because, you know, they're the world's by far biggest processor of all those materials and metals that are needed for wind and solar and EVs. And, of course, the OPEC um, cartels and, and, and nations that represent it. So the beneficiaries, balance of trade-wise, geopolitically, have been pretty evident. And then there's the flip side, right? For every beneficiary, there's been somebody who's been damaged by that. And then lo and behold, a certain beneficiary feels that they've got the leverage now, the wherewithal to take some uh, liberties when it comes to literally take liberties, not just figuratively, when it comes to Ukrainians, and not think that there's going to be a consequence because you look at the energy landscape and you say, I've got them. And to a certain extent, he does. So, um, you know, there, these things energy related, um, they go way beyond just the dollar per megawatt hour, the dollar per million BTU, um, what's going on with, uh, with manufacturing base. And they're, they're very big, grand, um, global, global issues. Yeah. 
I, I completely agree. And I think the, certainly the past four months and, um, it'll be interesting to, have, to see what happens over the next couple of years. Um, but it's been a crude awakening and reminder for the world on, okay, guys, energy's great. If it's cheap and we can worry about climate change, if energy's super cheap, but as soon as it's not and it's scarce, then it's still the, the lifeblood of society, right? Well, that, you know, and, and you brought up sort of the, the example of pipes and policy pipelines. You know, what people in the energy space need to do um, is to become bigger advocates for what yeah. we bring to the table. And, and look, I've been as guilty of it as anyone in the past where I wanted to keep my head down. I called it political quietism. I just kept my mouth shut and went about my work and sticks and stones, right, will break your bones. But you know, the, the advocacy angle to this is, is crucial, getting the facts, getting the, the math, the science out on this so that rational decisions when it comes to policy are being made. So you fast forward, you look at where I was, keeping my head down, you know, just focusing on business, let's say, to where I'm at now, I've written a book, you know, Precipice uh, is a book that I've written about a lot of these themes that we're talking about today. Um, I've done a podcast and I put a podcast out every week, the Far Middle podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. So the, the, the content and the advocacy is something that I wasn't very comfortable with, just not my personality, uh, never sure. has been. But feeling and looking, taking a hard look at what is the responsibility of a professional in something like domestic energy, if it's that crucial to our communities, to our nation, and to the world. If we really believe that the why of, of what we do for the world is, is accurate as we portray it, and I do, I do think we're fundamental to, to life itself. And we've got an ethical and a moral duty to start speaking up and to advocate based on reason, based on fact, based on science. And again, I say all the time, it's not political. It's physics, okay? Yeah. It's, it's not political. What we need to do is we need to get these things right. And once we get them right, people can feel free to politicize in any way they want after that. But we okay. do need sort of rational-based policy, and I think that's almost a, an inherent duty because we interview new candidates in the company now all the time. I interview now everybody that comes in to, to, to join the company. We only have 450 employees, so I can sort of do that. Um, one of the things we always talk about uh, is going to be this issue of advocacy and you know, you're in a position where you're, you're ready to participate in that to a certain degree. So I'd, I'd encourage all the listeners and all the members of, of YPE, you know, get out there and advocate, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, check me out on Twitter, listen to the Far Middle podcast. I'll do the same with whatever other efforts are out there. And that's the number one reason, frankly, Mark, why I was so excited to talk to you guys today. It's a chance yeah. right, for like-minded entities that want to get these things right uh, to interact in a way we can have a, a really constructive discussion for, for, I think, a lot of listeners and stakeholders. That's fantastic. Nick, I, I think that answers many of the questions that we ask all of our guests, which is, what advice do you have for uh, young professionals in energy, which is get out there and be an advocate, or that's what I heard, um, and you're, you're optimistic about um, where the industry's going. So, For sure. Um, with with that, I think that's that's a great place to lead it. So. I appreciate yep. it, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time.